Well, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 3, where we'll be looking at the royal line of Jesus Christ, which is a, you know, nicer way of saying a genealogy. Now, do you know your family's ancestry? I mean, think about it. Do you know uh, who your great-great-grandfather was? Maybe your great-great-great-grandfather. A lot of us know a little bit. We might know a grandparent or a grandparent. We might know maybe where we were from in general. But, you know, who were your relatives during the 16th century? During the Elizabethan Puritan era? Where were they? Where did they live? What did they do? Where were your relatives at 1000 AD during the Dark Ages? Who were they? Where did they live? What were they doing? Where were your ancestors at the time of the prophet Isaiah? Where were they during the time of Abraham on 2500 B.C.? Do you know which of the hand people, handful of people who are on Noah's Ark that you're related to? <laughs> you are. I can trace my genealogy back on my dad's side for several generations about to Ellis Island. And I'm from Irish descent on my mom's side. I can go back a little bit farther to France where... I came from some French farmers, but other than that, I don't know anything else. But imagine how wonderful it would be if you could trace your genealogy all the way back to Adam. That would be pretty significant, wouldn't it? I mean, you'd want to show somebody, huh? Look at my genealogy. You could trace all the way back and see all the people. I mean, who knows who might be in your genealogy? Maybe somebody important. And in recent years, uh, genealogical research has become kind of a fad because Mormons teach that that you can be baptized in proxy for somebody who has already died so they can go to heaven. So they have created huge databases and other people for other reasons have added to those. And now there are big uh, libraries and computer databases so that you can try and trace your ancestry all the way back as far as possible. And the Jews were also very interested in genealogies. And you can understand why, especially during Jesus' time, because if you were a Jew, it meant you were part of the chosen people of God. And so you wanted to know that you were a Jew. You remember what happened to those Jews or half-Jews who couldn't show their ancestry in the time of Nehemiah. They were excluded from rebuilding the city and the temple. It was also important if you were a Jew to know what tribe you were from because that would tell you your function and place in temple worship. And in the first century, it was such a huge deal, genealogies, that Paul actually had to warn Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.4 not to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. The Jews had created these incredible uh, schemes and... Uh, systems and even doctrines based off of genealogy, which were all fiction. 
I mean, some of the genealogies might have been true, but, you know, people are saying, well, you know, I am the descendant of, you know, important person so-and-so, and so I'm a little bit more important than you. And there was a lot of controversy, and it was the big thing to see who had the best genealogy. Paul also told Titus in Titus 3.9 to avoid, avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife. So it is a big deal to the Jews, especially in the first century, this whole business of genealogy. And this would be especially true if you came on this scene saying, hey, I'm the Messiah. Or if you came on the scene saying, hey, here's the Messiah over here. The first thing a Jew would do is go, sure, prove it. And one of the things they would do is say, so what is his genealogy? That's one of the first things that would come to their mind, because you see, the genealogies traced a certain pattern through the Old Testament scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, and all of those prophecies about the Messiah served as a grid, a filter to strain out false messiahs. And so if you didn't match up with all of that proper genealogy, you weren't the Messiah. You may be a good guy. You may be able to do miracles. You may be an incredible teacher, but you aren't our Messiah. If you don't match up with every jot and tittle of the Messianic prophecies and the Hebrew scriptures, you're not the man. And because of this, Luke takes pains to show us that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah, the son of man, born of a woman, born under the law, and the redeemer and savior of those who would believe. Now, maybe, you know, you're a junior higher or a high school student or maybe you're in college. Maybe you're sitting there doodling in your bulletin, thinking to yourself, oh, brother, Pastor Jack is going to try and kill us with genealogy trivia. Maybe you're a little bit older and you're thinking to yourself, Oh, maybe it's time to fall asleep now with my eyes open. Wake up at the amen. You know, how is this going to improve my golf game? And that's how most Christians see genealogies. You're reading through some book and all of a sudden you come up to the sand pit of a genealogy. And you think to yourself, oh, no, I don't want to get bogged down in this thing. So you try and skip over it, go around it, because we tend to look at genealogies as kind of like a styrofoam filler in packing that, you know, God was writing the Bible. He wanted it to be big. He wanted it to be impressive. You know, I mean, who wants to carry around a thin Bible? That doesn't look authoritative. And so God decided to create a whole bunch of genealogical filler just to make it look more impressive because he was out of things to say. And that's how we kind of look at genealogies. They're kind of these uh, unnecessary evils. But I'm telling you, there will be a time sooner or later when you'll be at class, you'll be at work, 
You'll be talking to that neighbor, that person in the cubicle next to you, and they will begin to speak lies to you. And as James 2, 7 says, they will begin to blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called. And they'll look you right in the face and they'll say, you know, Jesus, he never even existed. They'll look you right in the face and they'll say, come on, Jesus wasn't God. They'll look you right in the face and say, you know, Jesus didn't rise from the dead. They'll look you right in the face and they'll say, you know, you Christians are so naive. The Bible is so full of errors and contradictions. Haven't you ever read the Gospels? Haven't you ever compared the genealogies in Matthew and Luke? And just, they're so full of contradiction. It just proves the Bible is false. And then what are you going to say? You're going to give them the sanctified, huh? <laughs> are you going to look at them in the modern vernacular and say, dude, you're so lame. Is that what you're going to do? Is that what Peter had in mind in 1 Peter 3.15 when he said that every one of us needs to be ready to make a defense? That word defense is apologia and apologetic, an argument for the hope that is within us to anyone who asks. Is your God glorifying defense going to be? Huh? Dude, you're so lame. I would hope not. I've had many people call me up on the phone distraught because some teacher, some college professor, some co-worker attacked their faith, tried to unravel the Bible. And they call up going, hey, how do I answer this? And you know what? The problem is not that they didn't get the truth. That's not the problem. The problem is, is when the preacher preached on the genealogy, they slept. They doodled. This is important stuff here. This is just not some sort of unnecessary filler. God put this thing in here and it's important. And so please do not fall asleep. This has some information, this genealogy, which is so significant that your eternal destiny rests on what this passage says. Think about it. If Jesus wasn't a human, he can't be your savior. He couldn't make atonement for your sins. You are on your way to hell. And you are an idolater because you worship Jesus. If in fact, he isn't a human. You remember what Peter said in 1 Peter 3.18? He says, for Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Jesus was the just human who died for the unjust humans. But hey, if he's not human, he couldn't be a substitute. Secondly, Jesus had to be human in order to fulfill prophecy. Jesus had to fulfill every one of those Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah. And if he just missed on one, he's not your savior. He can't save you from your sins. 
You will perish for all eternity in hell because there is no savior. The humanity of Jesus Christ is a matter of your eternal life or death. Jesus wasn't a man. You are in huge trouble. Contrary to what some may think, genealogies are not included in the page of scripture to bore people to death or as a cure for insomnia. They're there to show a critical connection. And this is something you need to know about genealogies. Whenever you get to a genealogy, know this, that almost always in every single instance, The reason that genealogy is there is to connect the first person with the last person mentioned. So now you can skip the middle. No, don't do that. But that is usually the reason. Usually there is a connection being made. The author wants you to know, here is this person and he's connected to that person. But if Jesus is the Messiah, then he is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. But in order to be the Messiah and the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, he must have the proper genealogy. And so Luke helps us verify the fact of Jesus' genealogy. But there is this massive problem. And before we even look at the text, we have to talk about it. Because if we don't, then a whole bunch of people will come up to me and go, hey, what about? So we'll do it. Preemptive strike here. And that is this. You read Matthew and you notice something. Matthew's genealogy was shorter, but you say, well, that's to be expected because Matthew only records from Jesus to Abraham. Luke records from Jesus to Adam. So Matthew includes three sets of 14 generations. Luke includes 11 sets of seven generations, but that's not a big deal. You also will notice that if you study Matthew's genealogy, that Matthew's genealogy starts from Abraham and descends to Jesus. Luke's starts from Jesus and goes back to Adam, actually to God himself who created Adam. But still, that's not a big deal. The problem comes when comparing the descendants from Jesus to David. Then... Nothing matches up except for two names, maybe two names. Some people say they might not even be the two same individuals. So we know that both genealogies leave out certain people, and that's not a problem because this was done all the time. If you you study Matthew's genealogy, or you can see, or Luke's, you can see that different people were let, left out, and that, that was a common practice. The purpose wasn't to show every single person, but a connection between the key people. So we know that that happened. That's not a big deal. For instance, if you looked at Matthew chapter one, verse one, it would say that David was the son of Abraham. Now, does that mean that Sarah gave birth to David? No. All it means is that David was a descendant of Abraham. That is what the the word means, son of. The real problem is with the difference between the names from Jesus to David between the two genealogies where virtually nothing compares. And this is where people are going to come to you and they are going to say, hey, the Bible is full of contradictions. I mean, how many genealogies does Jesus have? I mean, are these which one was his father and his grandfather? 
Hello? And then what are you going to do? Well, I'll tell you. First, let me give you a few possible solutions to this. Because this is, a, this is one of the major uh, wedges people try to uh, drive in uh, between Christians and their Bible to get them to reject Christ. Some have argued that Matthew presents Joseph's genealogy through Joseph's actual father, Jacob, not Jacob of the book of Genesis, but Jacob, who is listed as the father of Joseph, the carpenter, the husband of Mary. That's in Matthew 1.16. So they would say that Matthew records Joseph's um, genealogy through Joseph's actual father, the one who fathered him. Um, and that's pretty simple. And then they say this, this gets a little more complicated. If you think that genealogies are boring, I dare you to understand this. They say that Luke's genealogy presents Joseph's genealogy through his legal father, not his physical father. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking the same thing I was thinking. Well, how could they be different? Well, think with me real hard now. Matthew says Joseph's father was Jacob. Luke says it was Eli. Okay, here's the argument. Eli, who is listed in Luke's gospel as the father of Joseph, dies childless. You're thinking, well, then where did Joseph come from? Just hold on now. Let's say that Eli did die childless. The question is, is there any way that Joseph could be Eli's son if Eli died childless? And the answer is yes. Yes. Through what is called leveret marriage. Or if you are a Bible student, you might know it as the law of the kinsman redeemer. It's what we see going on in the book of Ruth. Yeah, you got it. A lever is the Latin word for brother-in-law. And this is what leveret marriage said. Leveret marriage said this. It said that, let's say there was a man. He was married to a woman and all of a sudden he dies and he has no male heir. Well, leveret marriage is that the brother, his brother could marry his wife and raise up offspring for her or the nearest relative could raise up offspring for her. And that's what we see going on in the book of Ruth. So that when that child was born, though it had a physical father, its legal father would be somebody else. And so they're saying in this view here that what happened is Jacob was his actual father, but his legal father was Eli because Eli died childless. And so Jacob moved in and had a father for his brother. And that's where Joseph came from. This would make Joseph the physical son of Jacob, the legal son of Eli, as Jacob would have married Eli's widow and raised up offering for his brother. And as Vicini said in The Princess Bride, I'm just getting started. So this, they argue, is when genealogy, the why the genealogies are different. Now, just follow this. Matthew records the physical line of Christ while Luke records the legal line. The problem with this view is 
you have to guess that that's what happened. It's possible. It's legitimate. And it's a reasonable thing. But we don't know for sure because the text doesn't say that. And there is another form of this same kind of view, which makes Matthew's genealogy trace the legal heir of Joseph kind of backwards. Luke's genealogy trace the physical line of Joseph. And then there are some other little switches and some little things that happened back in the Old Testament. I won't bore you with all the details because it would probably kill you. But there is a second other possible solution. Now, listen to this one. Now you thought genealogies were boring, huh? I dare you to figure out this one. Here's another one. Somebody else has said this. Matthew is giving us Joseph's genealogy. Joseph being the legal father of Jesus. And Luke is giving the genealogy of Mary. Jesus's physical line. This view says that the reason Joseph is mentioned in Luke's genealogy. And not Mary's name or Mary's father, um, is that is that Luke was committed to not mentioning any males in his genealogy. And so he inserted Joseph because Joseph had married Mary. It says this. It says that Eli was the father of Mary and Eli died without sons. And so... Mary, by the law, Numbers 27 and 36, was the heiress of Eli. And when she married Joseph, Joseph then became the representative of Mary's line. And so his name is inserted there. Brilliant, isn't it? The problem with both of these views is they both rely on information that's not found in the text. They're both reasonable. They're both possible. And they can ward off any attacks. But there is a third and better view. This is the view I like. This view says that Matthew's genealogy is the legal line of Joseph. Matthew, legal line of Joseph. Luke's genealogy is the physical line through Mary but for different reasons than the view just mentioned. Eli is understood as the literal father of Mary, just like the previous view. Joseph is not part of the genealogy at all, but he is included in Luke chapter 3, verse 23, parenthetically. You're thinking, what? That is a big word. That is a big word, and it's put there to confuse you so you don't understand the view. I'll explain it. Do you remember when Jesus was in his hometown and he was teaching in the synagogue and he was doing miracles and all of his neighbors who saw him grow up and knew him to be the carpenter son said in Matthew 13, 55, is this not the carpenter's son? What did everybody think about Jesus? Who did everybody think Jesus's father was? Joseph. That was the common thing to think, right? Sure it was. The people who knew Jesus saw him grow up, understood it'd be Joseph's physical son, but they were mistaken, weren't they? That is why Luke, in Luke chapter 3, verse 23, if you look there, 
says when he that is Jesus began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age. Now, just stop there for a moment. This is the verse that tells us how old Jesus was when he started his ministry. And the text says about 30, which means about 30. That's all we know. Some people say, well, he was 30. That's not what the text says. It says about 30. Maybe he was 28 or 29 or 30 or 31 or 32. I don't know. It was true that during that time when a male reached the age of 30, he was considered to be fully mature, but that's all we know. He was about 30. And notice what the text goes on to say about Jesus being as was supposed the son of Joseph, the son of Eli. Now notice the text clearly says Joseph was supposedly Or Jesus was supposedly the son of Joseph, doesn't it? Which means what? He wasn't. In other words, you could summarize the text here. Jesus was not the son of Joseph, son of Eli. Now, you have a very unique situation here, don't you? You're Luke. You're going to write a genealogy of Jesus. You want to trace his physical line because the theme of your book is the humanity of Christ. The problem is Jesus doesn't have a human father. So what do you do? What do you do? Well, first, you parenthetically state that Joseph is not Jesus's father, as most people supposed he was. And so it is reasonable to read the text this way. Jesus, and then you just. Take all the 30 years old stuff out. Jesus being the son, parenthesis, as was supposed the son of Joseph, in parenthesis, of Eli. And if you leave out the parenthetical statement, it would read this. Jesus being the son of Eli, which is very acceptable as we know, we already stated that oftentimes people were left out of the chink. This would not, or the link, this would not be the case, would it? Because Jesus would have no earthly father between him and Eli. Through Mary, would he? Because God was his father. Now you say, well, Jack, can you do this? I mean, is there any reason to say that this supposedly was the son of Joseph? Is there any reason to say that this is just a parenthetical statement that it should really say Jesus being son of Eli? Absolutely. And these are some of the reasons. First, Luke mentions 77 names in his genealogy, and all of them have the article in front of it, the article is the the word we translate the, which makes it definite. There's only one name that doesn't have the in front of it. And guess what name that is? Joseph. Joseph's only is the only name out of all 77, which does not have the in front of it. Why? Because Luke clearly says he was supposedly the son of Joseph, which means he's not. This would tell us that Eli is the grandfather of Jesus. And the only way that could happen is if he was the grandfather of Jesus on Mary's side. That is, Mary's father was Eli. Secondly, this view also allows for the most natural meaning of son of. Jesus was supposedly the son of Joseph, but actually the son of Eli through Mary. The phrase son of, as mentioned earlier, means a descendant of. As we mentioned in Matthew 1, 1, it says that David was the son of Abraham. When we read in different places of scripture, Jesus is called the son of who? David. Well, does that mean that one of David's wives gave birth to Jesus? No. What does that mean? That means that David was, his descendant was Jesus. 
Jesus was of the line of David. Third, this view fits the themes of Matthew and Luke best. Matthew's theme is Jesus is the king. And so it's understandable that Matthew wants to make sure that everybody knows that Jesus has legal right to the throne. And so since Joseph was his adopted father, he traces that line there. Luke, of course, is trying to argue for the humanity of Christ, that Jesus is the son of man. So Jesus wants to trace his human ancestry back. Fourth, this view fits well with Luke's omission of women in the genealogy altogether. Luke follows standard Jewish practice, and that is when you have a genealogy, you only mention males. You remember Matthew's genealogy. Some incredible things are mentioned there, right? Tamar is mentioned. The prostitute, the Gentile, Rahab, the Gentile, the prostitute, Ruth, the Moabitess, Bathsheba, the adulterer, and Mary. How many of those people does Luke mention? Nada. And this is very significant. In fact, that Luke's gospel is the most feminine oriented gospel out of all of them, isn't it? Remember, we learned that Luke includes 17 women that are never mentioned in any of the other gospels. But here in his desire to relate only males, he leaves out. So what is Luke to do? The theme of his gospel is Jesus is the son of man. He wants to show the physical line of Jesus, yet he is committed to leaving women out of his genealogy. So what does he do? First, Luke leaves out Mary's name, wanting to submit to Jewish tradition. Secondly, he knows that some people will think that Jesus was the physical son of Joseph. So he adds the parenthetical statement that he was supposedly the son of Joseph. Third, since Jesus had no earthly father and since he has decided to leave out all women out of his genealogy, he goes to the nearest male on Mary's line, which is Eli, and then traces Eli's line all the way back to Adam. Now, you thought they were boring, huh? Take that. Finally, the fifth and final argument is this, and this is kind of simple. Why would Luke clearly say Joseph is not Jesus's father and then go on to give us Joseph's genealogy? It wouldn't help the argument of his book. It would be, uh, you'd ask, why? But see, if that was a parenthetical statement, it would make perfect sense. Jesus being not the son of Joseph, the son of Eli, and then all the way back. So that's my view. You can take whatever view, but regardless of the view that you take, know that there are very clear, rational, reasonable reasons to say that there is no problem with the genealogies. Now, as you can imagine, we might spend months going through this genealogy. We could talk about character sketches of all the key people and all the Old Testament theological significance and dramas surrounding these individuals. But thankfully, we are not going to do that. We are going to take it in one big fell swoop. And one of the challenges of the genealogy is just trying to pronounce the names. And, you know, we've been having a lot of children being born at Calvary. And a lot of women who are pregnant. And there's a lot of good names here that, uh, you know, if you haven't picked a name for your child to be born, hey, here's some really great ones. And so just as a test of my uh, verbal abilities, let's go through 
the genealogy just so that we will not pass up any of the word of God. So if you have your Bible, you can follow along as I read Luke three twenty three through 38. When he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being as was supposed the son of Joseph, the son of Eli, the son of Mathat, the son of Eli, the son of Melchi, the son of Jani, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Helsi, the son of Nagai, the son of Maath, the son of Mattathias, the son of uh, Simeon, the son of uh, Josech, the son of Joda, the son of uh, Joanan, the son of Ressa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shetil, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adi, the son of Kassam, the son of Elm Adam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Joram, the son of Mathat, the son of Eli. Pretty fun so far, huh? The son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Melia, the son of Mena, the son of Mattatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Solomon, the son of Nashon, the son of Amminadab, the son of Ad- Admin, the son of Ram, the son of Herz- uh, Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nora, the son of Sarag, the son of Ru, the son of Peleg, the son of Heber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of uh, Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalil, the son of Canaan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Oh, there we go. And so now we know everything about that. Uh, let me just pick out three points here. And we're just going to pick out three little gems out of here. There's a lot of things you could fish out. But remember, the big point is to connect the first person with the last. And so there are three indicators God wants you to know about Jesus so you can be encouraged that he's the Messiah. And the first one is this. God wants you to know that Jesus is the son of man. Of course, this is Luke's theme. And it's the reason why I think Luke includes this entire genealogy to prove this point. He wants to show that Mary, his mother, was a human of human descent from the first human, Adam, who was created by God back in Genesis chapter 1. Turn to Genesis chapter 1 and let's just see what we can find there. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. Who was Adam? He was the first man created, the first human created. And in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, this is what we read. Then God said, let us make man. Now, that word man there is the Hebrew word Adam. It's the same word we get Adam from. In our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps in the earth. And God created Adam in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. So here we see the created, the creation. Now there's another more detailed creation account. Turn over to chapter two and we'll just look at verse seven and eight there. Tells us exactly what God did here. 
Then the Lord God, verse 7 of chapter 2, formed man, Adam, out of the dust of the ground and breathed life into his nostrils and the breath of life and Adam became a living being. And the Lord God planted a garden towards the east in Eden and there he placed a man whom he had formed. And this is the um, first job, uh, the most sanctified and glorious job of gardening. Gardening is an argument for having a garden. And... Uh, this is what I use. Uh, I'm just trying to get back to the pre-fall condition. Um, there we go. It's, uh, it's a rationalization for gardening. But yeah, he puts him in the garden to take care of it. And we know that story. And then in verse 15, if you look there, God creates, creates this gardening job, puts him in the garden to tend the garden. And then in verse 16 and 17, God commands Adam to eat anything he wants except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then in verse 18 20 through 23, God says it is not good for man to be alone. And he wants Adam to realize this. So he gives him a little task. He says, Adam, what I want you to do is name all the Adam, the animals. And so all the animals come. They come cruising by Adam. He looks at them. He says, you know, there's a giraffe, there's a hippo, there's a rhino whatever he names them all which is fine but when he gets through he realizes he does not have a counterpart which is what god wanted him to realize that there was not a helper suitable for him and so god makes him fall asleep does the first surgery takes uh the woman out of adam and forms her and brings her to the man and she um is Isha. She is called woman Isha. And later on, her name is given in Genesis 3.20. If you look there, the man, that is Adam, called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the word Eve means living. The point Luke is making is just this. Jesus is fully human, having descended from Adam, the first man created by God. And of course, this is necessary If you're going to redeem Adam's race, you must be of Adam's race, except without sin. And of course, Jesus had that because as from human ancestry, he was all uh, his lineage went all the way back to Adam, as Luke shows. And from his other side, he had a heavenly father. And so he was without a sin nature. Now, have you ever had to fill out a form for a job or or maybe a a loan form or something? And and they ask you if you're related to anyone in the company. Do you ever lie and write no? Huh? My conscience bothers me. I feel like having an extra sheet. Included in the form to explain what most people don't believe anymore. Listen, if you are not my blood relative, you're not human. That's how it is. People always say, oh, yeah, well, so-and-so, they're my relative. Well, who isn't? The church is so saturated with worldly lies that we have suddenly blot into the lie That, you know, I've probably evolved from a different amoeba than your family line. And therefore, we are not related. Because you came from African amoeba. I came from Australian amoeba. And so that's why we aren't the same. We aren't equal. And it gives you a foundation for racism and prejudices against people with different skin colors. But if you understand the Bible... 
If you believe the word of God, we're all of the one race of Adam. And we're all blood relatives, aren't we? We all came from Noah's little group. And they all came from Adam and Eve. And that's how it is. That is the facts. So if you are human, you are related to everyone else in the world. And I have good news for you. There is a human savior and his name is Jesus. And he too can be traced all the way back to Adam. This makes Jesus the only perfect substitute for the sins of men. For he died perfect and willingly for Adam's fallen race. Luke wants all of us to know that Jesus is the son of man through Adam created by God. Hence, he is able through his death to save sinners. We're going to see that through the rest of Luke's gospel. The second thing we learn from this is this. God wants you to know that Jesus is the promised seed of Abraham. This is a major one, too. The Jews all understood that there was this covenant, this key covenant. It was the covenant with Abraham. Let's turn to Genesis 12 and see if we can figure this out. Genesis 12. This is the first place it's mentioned. The first three verses of Genesis 12. Here, God promises to Abraham that he will make him into a great nation. The problem was that Abraham had no children and his wife was barren. And this is what the Lord said to him, starting in verse one. Now, the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land. I will show you and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you shall be blessed a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. This is the first mention of what is called the Abrahamic covenant. This is one of the most significant, if not the most significant covenant in all the Bible. God told Abraham that it would be through his physical line that all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Turn over to Genesis 15. Genesis 15. Here God restates his covenant with Abraham. And he says this. We're just going to look at verse 4. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, This man will not be your heir. Speaking of Eliezer. Eliezer was Abraham's servant. This is what happened. God promises in chapter 12, that Abraham is going to be the father of a great nation and all the families of the earth will be blessed through him. The problem is Abraham's old. His wife is barren. And so Abraham is thinking, well, I guess I have to kind of adopt Eliezer, my servant, and he's going to be kind of, you know, the one who raises up offspring. And God says, no, no, this man will not be your heir. Verse four, but one who will come forth from your own body shall be your heir. Turn over to Genesis 17. The problem is, is that Abraham says, oh, okay. And Sarah says, oh, oh, all right. And they start scheming together. Let's figure this out. Okay, I'll tell you what. Let me give you my handmaid since I'm barren. I'll give you Hagar. Then you can take her as a wife and then you can... And father children through her. And then what will happen is, is you and I can have a child through Hagar. And so they try to help God out 
instead of waiting for him. And what happens? Well, Hagar gives birth to Ishmael and then she goes over to Sarah and starts doing the ninner ninner. You know, I, I've got a son, ninner, ninner, ninner. You don't. Abraham likes me better. I'm the one who was able to do what you couldn't do, which, of course, makes Sarah very angry. And so ang- uh, uh, Sarah, you know, gives Hagar the drop kick and sends her out into the wilderness with Ishmael. And God says, it's OK, I'm going to take care of him. And so the angel of the Lord ministers, ministers to Hagar and Ishmael and says, I'm going to make Ishmael into a mighty nation. The problem is we're back to the beginning. You've got an older man and an older woman. Now you have the same promise, but no male child. And so this is what happens in Genesis 17. Look at verse two. God says, I will establish my covenant with you. And he's going, sure. How is this going to happen? Look down at verse seven. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. And so if you know the story, what happens? God fulfills his promise. There's a miraculous conception, a miraculous birth. Turn over to Genesis chapter 22. In Genesis 22, this is immediately after Abraham has offered up Isaac. God says, here's this miraculous child. And they get to have the miraculous child. Now he says, go kill him. And so Abraham's kind of distraught, but he obeys God right away and says, you know, I don't know. Maybe he's going to raise him from the dead. I don't know, but I'm going to go do what God says. I've, I've learned that much. And so what happens is, is God says in verse 18, notice here, he restates the covenant after, after he stops Abraham. And he says, in your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Now, here God reestablishes again to Abraham for the umpteenth time that he is making a covenant with him that is through his line and only his line that all the nations of the earth will be blessed, which means the Messiah has to come from Abraham. Did the Jews know this? Absolutely. Every Jew knew this. They all prided themselves because they were children of Abraham. They all knew that the promises came through Abraham. And so any imposter comes along and says, I'm the Messiah, but I'm not of Abraham. Get the cane out. Pull him off stage. Now turn to Acts chapter 3, verse 25. Now, this is the early part of the church. Peter's preaching. He's preaching to Jews. Jews who need to know that... Jesus doesn't nullify the promise made to Abraham. And Peter wants them to know this. Look at verse 25 of Acts 3. Verse 25, Acts 3. It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. And they're all saying, that's right. And don't you forget it. Saying to Abraham, and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. For you first, God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you back from your wicked ways. Now here he reinstates Peter in the New Testament era after the birth of the church is saying, hey, listen, the, the promises to Abraham, it is true. The covenant hasn't been nullified. God's still going to fulfill it. Now turn over to Galatians 3, and we'll see how this all wraps up. This is pretty fun. 
Paul is dealing with some Judaizers, some people who are having troubles breaking free from their long thousands of years tradition in Judaism. And Paul wants to explain to them the purpose of the law was not to save people, but to lead them to the conclusion that they were sinners in need of a savior, in need of a Messiah. And notice what he says in verse 16 of Galatians 3. He says, now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say to seeds, plural, as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed. That is Christ. Here Paul says, listen, do you remember that promise to Abraham? It's still in effect. And you remember when that promise said that in your seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. It's still true. And guess who the seed is? It's Jesus. It's Jesus is what he says. Jesus is the seed. Now look down. He goes on to argue the promises of God to Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant are not attained by obedience of the law. Just because you are in the covenant community of Israel, just because you are of a physical descendant of Abraham doesn't mean you get in. You have to be believing by faith in Jesus. And that's how you get included. And this is what the incredible part is, because most of you and I are not Jews. And so we think, well, that's fine for the Jews. But what about us? Look at verse twenty nine. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. Not only did Jesus need to be human, a descendant from Adam, he also needed to be descended from Abraham. Why? Because God said it was only through Abraham's seed that all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And how do you become a partaker of the Abrahamic promise? Through faith in Christ. It doesn't matter whether you're Gentile or Jew. That's why he goes on to say in verse 28 of Galatians 3, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male or female for you are all one in Christ when it comes to the Abrahamic promises. And if you belong to Christ, you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. That means this. When a person places their faith in Jesus Christ, you get to have everything promised to Abraham. Even if you're not a physical descendant. And that's why it's important to know that Jesus is of the line of Abraham. Third and finally, God wants you to know that Jesus is the promised son of David. Luke 331 tells us that Jesus is a descendant from King David. And why did Jesus have to be a descendant of David? Turn back to Genesis again. Genesis chapter 49. Genesis 49. In the context here, they've all escaped the big famine. That is all the sons, the 12 sons of Jacob are now all living in Egypt. Eleven of them, of course, are in the land of Goshen. Joseph is ruler of all Egypt. And in chapter 49, Joseph is about ready to die. And so he gives a prophecy about each of his sons. And I want you to look at verse 10 of Genesis 49, because here, speaking of Judah, he says this, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. In other words, the kingly line will not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes and to him shall be all the obedience of the people. This remember is 400 years before Israel is even made into a nation that doesn't happen until Joseph dies and 
300 years go by and Moses and they get out of Egypt and then God makes a covenant and they become his people. Right now, they're just 70 people in Goshen. But God says, Judah, it's going to be through your line that all the nations of the earth will be blessed. It's through your line that the ruler is going to come to whom belongs the obedience of all the people. Then later on in second Samuel seven, eight through 17 and later in first Chronicles 17 turn there. First Chronicles 17 is in both of these places. We have what is called the Davidic covenant, which is another very significant covenant. And in first Chronicles 17, this is what we read in verse 11. This is Ezra telling what Nathan told to David. When your days, verse 11, are fulfilled, that you must go to be with your fathers, that I will set up one of your descendants after you who will be one of your sons, and I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for me, and I shall establish his throne forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son and I will not take my loving kindness away from him as I took it away from him who was before you. But I will settle him in my house and in my kingdom forever and his throne shall be established forever. Here we have this, that David's line would produce the everlasting ruler who would rule and reign over the house of David and Israel forever. And ever. Do you remember why Mary and Joseph had to travel to Bethlehem, the city of David? It's because both of them were of the descendants of David. And Luke wants you to know, and God wants you to know, that Jesus is the Son of Man, descended from Adam, who is created by God. Jesus is the promised seed of Abraham, through whom all the nations are blessed. And Jesus is the Son of David. He is the rightful heir of the throne. And you will either be judged by that king, or you will rule and reign with him forever and ever. And that's why this genealogy is important. So, you have learned that there are differences between the genealogies, but there are possible solutions. Secondly, you have learned that Jesus is fully man, and because of that, he can make atonement for your sins. Third, you have learned that Jesus is of the promised seed of Abraham. And if you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you get to partake of all those same promises. And finally, you have learned that Jesus is the son of David, the rightful heir of David's eternal throne. And because of that... He's going to be the king that every knee bows in front of and every mouth confesses because he is the Lord. Next week, we'll get to the temptation of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for what we learned here in this text. We thank you that this genealogy is here. And Father, a lot of times we get to genealogies and we don't really know what to think of them, that a lot of neat things don't really pop out. Help us to remember that you'd put them there on purpose to bless us, that even genealogies are profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Help us to remember the truths that we learn from this genealogy. The Bible has not contradicted itself. Help us to learn that Jesus is human, a descendant from Adam, that he is of the line of Abraham, the promised seed, that he is of the royal line of David, who will be the eternal ruler. 
over heaven and earth. And Father, help us to live in light of that. We just thank you for just your blessing to us. We thank you for Luke's diligent in showing us these things. We just pray this in Christ's name. Amen.